the power-laden effect of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it reminded me of some of the titles of books a few hundred years ago. Do you ever notice these titles of books from back in the 1700s? They're like three sentences long. <clears throat> and this is a rather long title, but it's the only way I knew to communicate what I was after today. In, in uh, this hour of God moving across the nation in various and sundry ways, in various and sundry places, <clears throat> I wanted to address some things about God's Holy Spirit and His effect. But I want to start off with this statement. There is no revival without the working of the Holy Spirit. I laughed because someone said they were riding down the road and they saw a church and the sign out front said revival Monday through Friday. And they said, how do they know? How do they know there's going to be a revival those days? There may be some meetings and we grew up in a, in an environment where twice a year we would have spring revival and fall revival and you would meet every night, Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night. Every night, and with my mother, we were there every night. Everybody said, every night. And sometimes revival would visit, and sometimes it was just a bunch of meetings. Sadly, more of the latter. There is no revival. There never will be a revival, a true revival, without the working of God's Holy Spirit. We sang about the bones becoming armies. There would be no bones turned into armies without the breath. Look in Ezekiel 37, not now, but write that down. Ezekiel 37, God said, speak to the bones, and the bones rattled together. Now, now call the breath, and the breath blew, and they became living souls. Now, none of that happens without the breath of God, and the breath of God is His Spirit, His Holy Spirit. And we see that there are effects that result from the cause of God working through the Spirit. We talk about cause and effect, and God's cause is the working through the Spirit. And we're going to talk a little bit today about the effect. Now, I hope we understand that I could stand here for months and maybe years, and you, when I, by the time we're done, you're going to think I'm trying to, but and still not touch all of the effects of the Holy Spirit in our life. But I want to just send us down a road where we see some things. But I want to say this before I go any further. In the light of the, the most recent uh, God moving in places like Asbury and Lee University, and I've heard Belmont University, I've heard Samford University in Birmingham, and the list goes on. God, and it's, I'm great. I'm glad that it's universities. Not that I don't want to see old people revived, but I really, if young people are energized, then the rest of us will be. How about that? But I want to say this: what I'm about to present to you is not a yardstick or a scorecard. This is not a checklist. Let's let's go to that Asbury revival and okay. Did they meet this criteria check? Did it? Oh, they didn't meet this one. No, that's not what this is. Because what what this is is what we can expect to see as God moves. 
And when I say, and when anyone says, when the Holy Spirit shows up, I think we already know the Holy Spirit showed up before we did. The Holy Spirit, the presence of God is everywhere all the time. There's never a place the psalmist tells us. He said, man, I tried to go to the grave. I tried to go everywhere to escape the presence of God. There's nowhere to go to escape the presence of God. But there are times when God manifests his presence in ways that he didn't before. And it's the grace of God and the mercy of God that he doesn't manifest his presence 100% and 100% of the time because we would drop dead. Not a yardstick, not a scorecard. So if you think you hear me saying something that says, well, let's just test these revivals and see if they're real. You're not, as my, one of my boys told one of my old ones one time, you're not studying. <laughs> Acts chapter 2, verse 14 is what we're going to read. And after a while, I'm going to ask you to turn uh, to John 16. But Acts chapter 2, and uh, if you would stand while we read these verses I will allude to the previous verses later on, but we're not going to read them right now. Verse 14 in the ESV. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and the signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass. That every, everybody say everyone, who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You may be seated. Shall be saved. By the way, it's interesting. Rob and I are about the same age. I think I've got a couple of months on him. And we've probably both been studying the Bible the same amount of time. He more intensely than me. It's interesting that after all that time, you can open up the Bible and see something you didn't see before. I thought of that because that's probably the same word saved there. John 16, 13 says, when he, the spirit of truth comes, and that's what we're talking about today, when he comes, when the spirit of truth comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, and, you, and again, what I'm saying is when the Holy Spirit works, manifests himself, that's what we're talking about today. Peter is quoting Joel when he says, uh, God said, I will pour out my spirit. Now, I want to point out the obvious, but sometimes the obvious escapes us, and that is that he's not just talking about the day of Pentecost. Obviously, this was the fulfillment of that prophecy, but Joel was not speaking of one day. Joel said, God said, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, not just one day, but all, but all the time after that. 
We're still living in the day when God is pouring out his spirit upon all flesh. Then stop. It's a, another interesting thing is when he said, I will pour out my spirit, pour out. It's a word that means great abundance. It's a word that is more than is needed to supply the necessary sustenance. The Hebrew word there really means to gush like a gusher. It's more. It's not just, you know, you could take two drops and pour them out. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a river. He's talking about an ocean, pouring out an ocean of his Holy Spirit, a gushing of his Holy Spirit. And I want to tell you, that has not ceased. And it's not just taking place in the places that we see obvious manifested evidence of revivals. It's taking place in your life, as Kevin said earlier, every day. You have opportunity to allow God to move in your life. Thank God for the times of, of God moving in special ways. Thank God for the times when we gather on a Sunday morning and God moves in a particular way, in a special way, and we sense the presence of God in a way that we might not have if we were just sitting by ourselves in the parking lot. Thank God for those times, and God bless us. And thank you, God, for the opportunity to be able to gather and do this. When you look at this kind of information, you have to you have to consider the history of prior movements of God. I can't totally describe to you what a movement of God is, except that it's God moves in a particular way, and, and you know God has the opportunity and the the choice to do what He wants to do when He wants to do it. And we down through the years we've had Great Awakening, Second Great Awakening, Cane Ridge Revival, at the turn of the 20th century, early early. Uh, in Topeka, Kansas, and also in Azusa Street in California, God began to pour out his spirit in such a way that the gifts of the spirit began to re- be renewed. I don't know where they were before, but we began to see in two separate places, Kansas and California, we began to see the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the gift of tongues and all of this become renewed and thus began what we call the Pentecostal movement, Pentecostal revival. Somewhere in the between there in the 60s, there was what we call the healing revival, healing movement. And there was a really a move of God. You think, why didn't God do that all the time? Well, when you get to heaven, you ask him. Because I don't know. And then in the 60s, an Episcopalian priest by the name of Dennis Bennett was baptized in the Holy Spirit and began to pray in tongues. And, and for an Episcopalian, that was just out of the, I mean, you, that wasn't even heard of. And most people mark what we call the charismatic movement. Most people mark the beginning of that with Father Bennett receiving the Holy Spirit. And thus began what we call the charismatic movement. There's all kind of movements down through the years. What marks these movements? What what goes along with these movements? Well, in most cases... Uh, one of the things that comes when God really moves, when the Holy Spirit is really moving on people's lives, one of the first things we see is conviction. When Jesus gets in the boat with Peter and he realizes that this guy's kind of special, Peter falls on his knees and said, get away from me, I'm a sinner. 
When Isaiah goes into the temple, the year King Uzziah died, and he begins to see the presence of God, he says, oh, stay away from me. I'm a man of unclean lips. Conviction. If you're not convicted of your, of your shortcomings, then you're not in the presence of God. Of course, what follows. By the way, let me say this. In the first great awakening, Jonathan Edwards, it was said of Jonathan Edwards that when he would preach, people would grip the backs of the pews till their knuckles were white for fear that the floor was going to fall out from under them and they were going to go to hell. It wasn't because he was that great of an orator, although he probably was, but it was because the Holy Spirit was working in people's lives. He was convicting them. What follows conviction? Repentance. Real revival causes conviction and then repentance. And then what follows repentance is humility. We humble ourselves before God. And all of that produces in our lives holiness. This is what the move of the Holy Spirit does in our lives. Another thing that happens when God moves in such a way with his Holy Spirit is the is we're renewed and, and uh, renewed in our uh, knowledge of the need for making disciples, for disciple making. What if you're a part of the church on the day of Pentecost? Peter preaches his message and 3,000 people are saved. What are you going to do with these people? You don't have a Sunday school. You don't have small groups. You do, but your whole church is a small group. Well, that's what happens when God moves. But let me tell you some other things that happen when there's a valid movement of God. This comes from largely from experience. I can't tell you the Bible chapter and verse for this, but I want to tell you that in everybody say every Goy, are y'all awake? Come on, I know we we're an hour different, and uh, you know, I woke up and looked at my phone, and it said seven, but my body said six. Yes. Say every. every, see every valid move of God, every valid revival, every time God has moved in a true and verifiable way, there has been excess. And every time God moves from this day forward, there's going to be excess. Every place God is moving in our current climate, all the, you're going to find cases and places and you're going to hear of excess. That's just part of it. Because who is God moving upon? Human beings. Who is more flawed than a human being? Animals. Now, sometimes I wonder about that. You will find in these movements people beginning to push beyond the revelation that God is bringing. Why? It's not because they're bad people. It's not because God begins to move and you begin to see things and you begin to understand things you didn't understand before. And you say, well, if I can understand, there's got to be something here. And, you know, I used to hear people talk about going deeper and deeper into things of God. Well, I I tell them, you're going deeper into things, but it's not the things of God. It's that stuff we don't want to talk about. And I would say to people... How about we move 
not so concerned about the things of God, but the God of the things. We push beyond the revelation of the Holy Spirit. We move into, there's moving into biblical error. I say we, but again, it's across the board. There's always biblical error in revivals. Well, how can that be when God's moving? Because again, we're flawed people. And we, we, we find uh, movements into areas that are extra-biblical. I, I say this because I want us to understand that while God is certainly moving among certain areas, and he's, as Kevin has said, he's moving in each one of our lives. In these other areas, it's more obvious because there's things going on and there's larger groups. But I want to tell you, you can expect excess. You can expect pushing beyond revelation. You can expect biblical error and biblical, uh, extra biblical talk and teachings. You can expect that to happen because of human beings. But here's how you stop that. And that is it brings back to us the importance of being one who is under authority. Boy, that got quiet. I've never known a pastor who was under true godly authority who fell from grace and had to get up in front of his congregation and apologize. In almost every case that has happened, it's been a lone ranger who's doing his own thing, his own way, and not listening to anybody. Well, y'all are asleep this morning. Okay, I was going to say something. But I'm not. Anyway, Matthew 8, 9, look that up. It's important that not only pastors, but everyone be under authority. Someone asked me at a recent pastor's meeting, what is important to you? What is a, I forget what his question was. It was a young fellow, a real young fellow asking me as like I was an older guy. Well, I guess I was. And I said, well, the most important thing I can tell you is that every pastor should have a pastor. Every pastor should be under authority to somebody. I want to tell you how much that keeps you out of trouble. And the more God's spirit moves, the more important that is. Because we're tempted. We begin to feel things and see things. And, oh, glory to God, we see that. Let's run over here and see how, what this, man, I bet this works over here too. Now we got outside of what God's doing because we're looking for more. In the book of Acts, you had, I think Rob referred to this last week, you had, you had, uh, Simon trying to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit. They prayed. Philip prayed in Samaria. The people were filled with the Holy Spirit. And Simon, the magician, was standing there. He said, man alive, can I buy that? And I love it when people say, well, you know, you know uh, what was, what, how did he know? They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, it's obvious they were speaking, speaking in tongues. What else is he going to see? <laughs> they had the gift of the Spirit. I know I'm making some of y'all nervous, but I don't really care. <laughs> but here's this guy saying, hey, can I buy that? Can I buy the gift of the Holy Spirit? And Peter, at some point, Peter, I mean, they, they said, wait a minute. You need to put the, shut that down. And anyway, I'm not going to go into all that. And here's another thing that happens, and it happened in the book of Acts. 
And that is people are tempted to copycat without the authority and without the anointing. I've watched people down through the years in the midst of movements, they would attend a meeting of that particular movement and they would observe what was going on. And they'd run back home and they'd try to copycat what they saw. And for one thing, when they went home and they tried to copycat what they saw, they did it in the flesh. And when they were fleshly, guess who got blamed for what they were doing? The people they were copying. I'm not naming names, but some of you know who I'm talking about. When, I, when the Brownsville revival was going on, I watched people, you know, run down there. I never went. My goodness, we grew up in Florida Panhandle. Why would we go down there and visit? But anyway, some people went to enjoy the presence of God and to bathe in the Spirit of God. Some people, mostly pastors, went with a notepad. Let's see how we can bring this back to where we are. You can't. You can go to every revival known to man, and you can experience the presence of God. And if that's why you're doing it, thank God, do more of it. But if you think you can bring that back home, mechanically, you can't do it. I want to tell you this, and I want you to, if you don't hear anything else I say, you hear this. You can never, everybody say never. You can never operate off of someone else's revelation and anointing. Never. You might see something good that's happened. You might see something going on, and you might enjoy the presence of God. You might enjoy what God's doing in that moment, and you should. But you cannot, you cannot operate off of someone else's revelation and anointing. It's nothing but flesh. There was a Jewish priest in the book of Acts, his name was Sceva. He had some sons. And they saw Paul casting demons out of people. And they said, hmm, we think we can do that. Let's go cast us some demons out. And so they went to this guy and they started, we're going to cast out in the name of Paul, they said. In other words, they're trying to piggyback Paul's anointing and Paul's revelation. And they had no idea what they were doing. The Bible tells us that that guy, that demon in that guy took hold of those boys, beat them to a pup, stripped all their clothes off of them, and they went running with whatever tail they had tucked between their legs. Why? Because they were trying to do something outside of their, the parameters of their own anointing. And their own revelation. Sons of Sceva. Here's another thing that happens in movements. That is misunderstanding what is happening. Acts chapter 2. It said others in the crowd ridiculed them saying they're just drunk. That's all. (laughs) They're just a bunch of sots. And Peter said. Peter stood up. He said now wait a minute. These people they're not drunk. As you are assuming. It's just nine o'clock in the morning. It's much too early for that. And of course, when I read that, I think Peter never knew any Cajuns. <laughs> we used to go to softball tournaments. And when we lived in Louisiana, we had a softball team. And we'd go to the tournament. Most of the tournaments were at the Catholic Church put on by the Knights of Columbus. And, and we'd go every Saturday and play somewhere. Most of the, the one near us. And uh, we would get there at 7 o'clock for an early game, and the beer truck was already open. 
And the largest trophy for that tournament was always the beer drinking trophy. I mean, the beer drinking trophy was here. First place for the tournament was down here somewhere. Anyway, lifestyle. And anyway, he said, they're not drunk like you think they are. Misunderstanding. I remember as a teenager when I became aware of the charismatic movement and began to listen to Brother Charles and some of these other teachers uh, and read magazines and listen to tapes and was drawn into that movement. Thank God that I was. I remember my mother used to just cry. What in the world is a charismatic movement? And I, you know, I'm 17, 18 years old. I couldn't tell her. But I, I, I knew it was good. It's good, Mom. I don't know. And then, you know, she just didn't understand why I wasn't over there in the church like I used to be in the same church. Misunderstanding. Years later, after it appeared or, or it was obvious that we were not a part of a cult and that we didn't develop two heads, um, she said, uh, people ask me, what kind of preacher are you? What, what should I tell them? What kind of preacher are you? I said, tell them I'm a good one. <laughs> they didn't know what to say. She didn't know what to, because misunderstanding. You can just, you can expect those things. You can expect those things in this climate. I want to talk just for a few minutes about the effect. The effect. If you turn to John 16, if you're in the book of Acts, obviously you just need to go to your left, assuming you're reading English, or you need to scroll up or back in your tablet. John 16, verse 8. And when he comes, he is the Holy Spirit. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. What happens when, when he comes? What happens when he, the Spirit of truth, comes? When he, the Holy Spirit, comes, what happens? Jesus said the first thing, and we've covered this already, is that the Holy Spirit will convict the world regarding sin. No one has ever come to Christ except the Holy Spirit convicted them of sin. Now you can, you can try to talk people into salvation. You can try to coerce people. You can try to argue people into the kingdom of God. But until the Holy Spirit convicts someone of their sin, there is no, going to be no salvation. He comes to convict of sin. He comes and he said, because they do not believe in me. He came to convict of righteousness because I go to my father. Why? What did he say? He's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will convict of righteousness, of right standing, because the Holy Spirit now carries out the function that Jesus was doing. I'm leaving, but the Holy Spirit will continue Teaching about righteousness. And then he talks about the judgment because Satan has been judged. And the defeat of Satan proves the certainty of judgment. The fact that God has judged. And by the way, in that verse, 
verse 11, concerning judgment because of the ruler of this world is judged in the, in the Hebrew, te- I mean the Greek text, it says because the uh, ruler of this world has been judged. He's already been judged. And because of that, we see that judgment is a certainty. So the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, teaches us about righteousness, and makes us aware there is a judgment, there is a day of reckoning. And when God moves by his Holy Spirit, this is what happens. Another thing that happens is that we see people speaking forth the word of God. In Acts 2, it said, we hear all these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. I don't think it's a coincidence that they're full of the Holy Spirit. They're baptized in the Holy Spirit. They begin to speak in languages that they don't know. And yet the people that are listening are hearing. I think the miracle is not in the speaking, but in the hearing. And they're hearing languages that they understand. But, but these people are speaking the word of God. Why? Because the Holy Spirit moved. Acts 4.8 says, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. I think that, I think you gotta connect those two statements. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. Acts 4.31, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. I think the two are connected. We need God's Holy Spirit to give us the boldness and the wherewithal to speak God's Word. Lord help me. What's another effect? Well, Joel and Peter tells us that dreams, visions, and prophecies are part of it. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Young men will see visions. Old men will dream dreams. So whether you can determine if you're seeing visions or dreaming dreams, you can determine your age. But God said, when I, in Joel, and of course Peter's repeating this, when I pour out my spirit, this is what's going to happen. We get nervous when we start talking about dreams. And we get nervous when people start sharing visions and prophecies. Well, I mean, we should be careful. We really should be careful. The Bible says, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit. What did he do? He prophesied. Why did he prophesy? Because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. The effect of the Holy Spirit is that people will prophesy. And I'm not going to go back. We did a whole series of teaching on the gifts of the Spirit. And that's available for a, for a nominal fee. <laughs> Actually, it's probably still on the podcast. And what happens is, what is he talking about? Dreams, visions, and prophecies. There develops a connection. Everybody say connection. Connection. A connection by the Holy Spirit to the supernatural. There is no connection to the supernatural without the work of the Holy Spirit. You can try, and again, you can try doing a formula. You can try... I'm, I'm standing here thinking of this story I probably told you before about this older lady, got up in the morning at 6 o'clock, went into her kitchen, got out her her iron skillet, and as I say this, I'm getting hungry, and she's put in a, a baker of homemade biscuits. My mother used to make them biscuits in that iron skillet. And, and yeah, see there? Now, where was I? Uh, 
And so she made this baker of biscuits and shoved them in the oven. And she knelt down beside her stove and she said, God, I pray that you'd fill me with your Holy Spirit. He filled her with the Holy Spirit. She began to pray in the Spirit and it was a glorious moment. She was telling this friend of hers about receiving the Holy Spirit in that way, in that time. And the woman said, well, how can I do that? I want, I want that. Well, you get up at six o'clock, get out your iron skillet. Cause that's how we think. Formulas. But when Holy Spirit moves, there's rarely a formula. He helps us to connect to the supernatural, what we'll call the extra natural, beyond the natural. When you see people healed, that's beyond the natural. Shoot, when you see people saved, that's beyond the natural. Because none of us can be saved in the natural. We can't change our behavior and become Christians. We can't do it. But the Holy Spirit can change us from the inside out, and we become Christians. And by the way, when you talk about dreams and visions and prophecies, once again, we see the importance of being one who is under authority. I don't trust prophets who are not under authority. I don't even want to hear what they got to say. Tell me who you're... Tell me who's overseeing your life. Tell me who you answer to. And then I'll listen to what you got to say. If you tell me no one, just me and Jesus like Tom T. Hall, then I don't want to hear a word you got to say. Well, it might be valid. Might not. They were not drunk, as you suppose. Here's another thing. Personality and perspective changes. When God's moving in your life by the Holy Spirit and he's filling you with his spirit and he's moving, he's resting upon you, you see things that you couldn't see before and you understand things that you couldn't understand before. Things are open to you. I remember as a teenager, I'd, be, I'd studied the Bible as long as I could read. My mama said I was in church when I was two weeks old. I couldn't read then. It was a few, it was a few weeks later. But when I began to hear and began to experience this touch of the Holy Spirit, I began to see things. Well, why didn't I see that before? And I'd hear people teaching on the Scripture, and I'd read the Scripture. Man, I never heard it like that before. But boy, I see it now. Here's another thing. Think about Peter. Peter's a great example. I mean, Peter, with walking with Christ, Peter is uh, ordering Christ around. Hey, you're not going to do what you're not going to do that. I'm not going to let you do that. Peter is impetuous. Peter, as we've said many, many times, and as Brother Charles said, he cut the man's ear off because he missed. We know that. Peter, who can cuss like a sailor after spending three and a half years with Christ at the trial of Jesus. This is this Peter. You think, well, boy, I tell you, Brother Charles always said Peter's a great guy because he gets us in. Because if Peter gets in, we all get in. And yet look at Peter after the Holy Spirit had visited him and touched him and filled him to overflowing. He's he's the main speaker at the conference. And after he speaks, 3,000 people come to Christ. Not only that, his message is coherent. His message is sensible. His message is, is revelatory. Why? Because something changed. 
It didn't change him to be perfect because we know later on Paul had to get in his face for being a hypocrite. Here's another effect, and that is that the those people went from self-centered to others occupied. They were jockeying for position, the disciples. And they went from jockeying for position to having all things in common. James and John sent their mother to Jesus and said, Can my son sit at your right hand? And, of course, Jesus said, If they're going to suffer what I'm going to suffer, they can. They didn't know what that meant. But here's the key. When the ten other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. And why do you think they were indignant? Because they wanted to sit at his right hand. Well, they weren't. Matthew 18, 1, they kept asking the question, who is the greatest? Mark 9 tells us they had been arguing about which of them was the greatest. Uh, one of the things people have remarked about watching The Chosen is that those disciples, they didn't like each other very much. You see what I just read? <laughs> they didn't. They were arguing. They were complaining. They were indignant. Because they, everybody wanted to jockey for position. Everybody wanted to be first. Everybody wanted to sit at the right hand of Jesus. And when someone else acted like they were going to, we had a problem. And everyone was arguing about who's the greatest. But look at this verse. Just a few, a little while later, the Holy Spirit comes, fills them up, baptizes them in the Holy Spirit. Just a few chapters into the book of Acts, we find this. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. There was not a needy person among them. What does that mean? They went from self-centered to others occupied. And if you've really been touched by the Holy Spirit, you're going to move, make that movement. Now, you may not stay there because you are a human being. But Paul, when he wrote to the Philippians, he said, if there's any participation in the Spirit or fellowship, koinonia, in the Holy Spirit, here's what I want. To complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. Paul assumed that was the byproduct of fellowshipping with the Holy Spirit. Here's one that you might not have thought about. You might have heard me talk about it before. And that is an increased ability in vocation. What does that mean? We're not going to turn. I'll put them on the screen for you. Exodus 30. Well, William will. Exodus 31. See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. Verse 3. <clears throat> And I have filled him with the Spirit of God. And he began to speak in tongues and prophesy and lay hands on people and they were healed. Well, that's not what it says. Now that happens. I'm not mocking that. But we think that's the only thing that ever happens. He said, I filled him with the Spirit of God with ability and intelligence with knowledge and all craftsmanship. What about the idea that God's Holy Spirit Gives us intelligence. Now I've got to admit, I know some people, I've heard some people talk 
that evidently had not been touched by the Spirit of God. <laughs> and some of them hang their faces out on TV and stuff. I mean, anyway. But is it logical, sensible for you to expect that when the Spirit of God comes upon you, that he gives you ability, and that he gives you intelligence, he gives you knowledge. I've heard people say, well, if you're a Christian, you know, you, just, you need to be an idiot. You know, don't, don't have any knowledge. Knowledge and all craftsmanship. To do what? To devise artistic designs. To work in gold, silver, and bronze. What? Now, let's understand this. The Holy Spirit comes on Bezalel. What is the end product? That he, he creates artistic designs. He has anointed craftsmanship. Verse 5, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood to work in every craft. Don't think for a moment that God's Holy Spirit isn't involved with you in your vocation. Whatever you put in your hands to, whatever, you know, you know, we making stones all the time or these kinds of things, but whatever you put your hand to, the Spirit of God, the effect of the Spirit of God is that you are excellent in whatever it is that you're putting your hand to. We know that He manifests Himself through the gifts, through gifts. Don't, don't miss the Word Himself. He manifests Himself. We, we want to get excited about the gifts, and we should. We should be excited that God gives us gifts, but we need to remember what and who they are. First Corinthians 12 says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Now watch this verse. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. For the common good. So on the one hand, there are varieties of gifts. On the other hand, the manifestation of the Spirit, what, they're both the same thing. So the gifts of the Spirit are the manifestation of the Spirit. They're not just something the Holy Spirit drops in our lap and says, here, take that, I'll, I'll see you later. But the gifts of the Spirit are the Holy Spirit manifesting himself in our lives. When you see that happening... You know that you've been visited by the touch of and the power of the Holy Spirit. One we talk about a lot, enabled and empowered to be his witnesses. Acts 1.8, you will receive power. In the Greek word there means ability. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria. And even to the remotest part of the earth. You be my witnesses. It, it's biblically, we would say that to be effective, authentic witnesses of Jesus Christ to the world, we need the working and the effect of God's Holy Spirit in our lives. And then finishing up, some of you said hallelujah. What's, what's the, what's the effect? Joel finishes with, and Peter, quoting Joel, finishes with, and that is, that, or that would be that souls being saved. Jesus came, said, he said, I came to seek and save that which was lost. I came, Jesus said, I came to seek and to sozo, save, 
that which is lost. Even in, in Joel, when in the, I mean, I thought it's interesting that in, in uh, verse 21 of Acts and also in Joel, the very last part of that passage, it says, It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. As Rob was talking about earlier, that sounds like New Testament. Well, it is New Testament because he's quoting the Old Testament. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And in context, God is saying, because I pour out the Spirit, because uh, old men would dream dreams, young men would, would dream, uh, see visions, because sons and daughters were prophesied, because of all these things, the effect of me pouring out my Spirit on all flesh is going to be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Thank God for the gifts. Thank God for the miracles. Thank God for the supernatural. But we don't, we don't get those things for the sake. You don't get the gifts of the Spirit for the sake of the gifts of the Spirit. There's a reason. There's a reason we have these things that God does in our life. What is the reason? That the end result, that everyone who should call on the name of the Lord should be saved. God's eternal bottom line. And God's ultimate goal of any of his actions is that people would come to him by the work and conviction and drawing of the Holy Spirit and their soul would be saved. This is what we can watch for. This is what we can expect if we're going to fellowship with the Holy Spirit. We're going to allow the Holy Spirit to be a part of our lives. I have so many things I want to say about what not this. I'm not going to say any of that. I'm just going to say that that ask God. Ask God. I am thinking about this. Jesus said, if a son asks his father for some bread, will he give him a rock or a snake? In the same way, if you ask my father, for the Holy Spirit, will he not do it? Will he not give you? Will, will he not allow the Holy Spirit to impact your life? So just ask. Stand with me.